0: Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Fay and Tom Breeze. Episode 14, Additional Learning Needs, with Dr. Anne Hodgson.
1: Welcome back everybody to Emma and Tom talk teaching we have a special guest for you a new guest this time um Dr Anne Hodgson welcome to the podcast how are you doing I'm all right thanks thanks for having us (laughs) so Anne I'm ashamed to say I I don't know exactly how long you've been with us it feels like you're part of the furniture now but when did you start with us here at Cardiff Met (laughs) um so I started May last year Okay. So you should probably tell our listeners, first of all, about your background um, and the work that you do regarding pupils with additional learning needs, which is going to be the focus of our podcast episode today.
2: Okay, no problem. I'll try not to give you war and peace about my background. But um, <laughs> yeah, so um, so I'm a primary school teacher by trade. That's my background. I did an early childhood studies degree back from f- f- years ago. And in my first ever placement in a nursery there were uh, identical twins one had a diagnosis of autism and one didn't and i was completely smitten like i just got bitten by the bug of being fascinated by autism and how it works and just watching this this little autistic girl trying to communicate with the other children and and you know not understanding because it was all imaginative play you know i remember we were doing going on a bear hunt in the hall and they put cones out to pretend to be trees and this little girl i just watched her walk up to one of the cones and like tip it and look at it and put it back and walk away as if to say like what are you all doing you know she completely didn't understand like the purpose of the session but and yeah and i just got completely obsessed with autism so I finished that degree, did my PGCE primary, started working in mainstreams, uh, then I got a job in a special school for children and young people with autism, worked there for a while and then I got, uh, then I did my Masters. I did a postgrad in Asperger's Syndrome and then I did a Masters in Autism and then I got a job leading the autism team for Cardiff, local authority, and that's where I've been for the last 15 years, which is like really awful uh, to say out loud. And I was annoying myself when people were saying, oh, what are you doing now? And I was going, yeah, still in the same job. Uh, So I decided to, to just go for a change. So I'd done my doctorate, I'd finished my doctorate. That was completely different in, that was in leading for educational change. Um, that was a bit of a sidestep. I think I'd because I'd been in the local authority system for so many years, I was quite interested in how we could potentially change the systems. Um, and um, yeah, so then I, I moved over to the university in May. And it does feel like I've been here a very long time, although I am on a daily basis, reminded that I'm learning everything from scratch as I go through all the processes and the, and the modules. But yeah, I'm loving it.
0: we're contractually obliged on the podcast to point out that we're at a time of educational change in Wales. We mention this every episode. (laughs) One of those educational changes, I suppose, is the new ALN Code, the new ALN Act in Wales. And that's why you're here. So tell us about it. Why have we got a new one? Um, And what are the implications for pupils and for schools? (laughs) Big question, I know. Yeah, (laughs) huge
2: question. Why have we got one? So the old SEN system, the, which was our, our old legislation around special educational needs in Wales and statements of special educational needs were our statutory documentation to supporting learners with, with SEN. It, it had become very um, litigious. There was lots of disagreements and disputes around the process, the system. There was lots of people unhappy, uh, lots of families unhappy with the the processes. The starting point for the reform, really, um, I mean, things are always on a continuum, aren't they? So there's never really a true starting point. But the big kind of kickoff was probably back in about 2007 with a document called Statements or something better. And that was talking about the the issues and the problems with the current system uh, at the time around SEN and the fact that we needed to do something radical, we needed to do something different. And that started a whole process of like policy reform and discussion around what that would look like. And you can imagine that when we're talking about very, very vulnerable groups, any changes to legislation need to be very carefully mapped out and thought out. So we, you know, the The Welsh Government went round the houses a number of times trying to iron out creases and taking things out to consultation and reviewing and that process went on for a very long time. And then in 2018, we got the Act, the ELN Act, which outlines... um, the new legislation the new expectations and the language around you know our definitions of what we replace SEN with additional learning needs and and what the definition for that is and then a couple of years later in 2020 we got the code which is how to operationalize that basically it's the guidance for schools as to how do we put this legislation into practice and what does that look like and yeah there's the the changes are huge really uh, there's so there's just loads of layers to it. So for the first one, the really obvious one, is it, we now go not to 25. So it used to be 3 to 19, the old SEN legislation covered, and now it's from birth up to 25. So that extension of services, that getting all of the systems and services to work together right from the point at which children... I mean, obviously, for many children with additional learning needs, we don't know from birth. You know, we don't know until we introduce them to a kind of social context, a learning context, and then their needs start to become apparent. But there are lots of children whose needs are apparent from birth, and we're joining up straight away from that point across all of the services to make sure that there's plans in place for supporting families and providing the children what they need. And then the top end, the kind of 19 plus, up to 25, it's really thinking about all those specialist college provisions and supporting uh, young people out into employment and apprenticeships and, and all that sort of stuff, which we weren't doing previously. But generally speaking, the kind of principles are uh, like it's about having a unified plan. It's about learner voice being absolutely front and centre. So their presence in all the discussions, their voice being reflected in the plans that we make, the targets that we set should be taking into account their wants and desires, the things they want to improve on, the things they're interested in. And parents and carers as well, having a really kind of central role in those discussions. The other big changes about the point at which people can appeal against decisions made around ALN. So in the old system, the only points that a, a parent or carer could appeal would be at the point at which a request for statutory assessment, which is what it was called at the assessment of SEN, the point at which a request for statutory assessment was made if the local authority refused to make that assessment, they could appeal against that. And then if an assessment had been carried out, And a statement produced, they could appeal against the content of the statements, they could appeal against the placement or they could appeal against the strategies, you know, the the provision being made in part three of the statement. In the new system, right from the point of just saying, I think my child has additional learning needs, if a school says we don't agree, a parent carer can appeal against that. Even bigger than that, so can the child So the child or young person can at any point raise issue with either what's being delivered for them or, you know, somebody saying that they they haven't got ALN and they don't need an IDP. It could even be that an IDP is being created and a young person doesn't want it. So they've got the right to appeal at any point in the process. How that's going to look moving forward and where that'll take us in terms of how litigious the whole thing gets, I don't know. But I think it's all part of making the children and young people absolutely front and centre for, you know, everything that we do.
0: I'm just going to jump in there with, I also have a contractual obligation to ask a horrible question at some point during this. I'm just going to jump in. This is before we move on to kind of what this looks like. Um, this, I'm putting this quite delicately, and um, I've marked a number of assignments from our students, where what we always tell our students is don't name the school, you can't name the school, but you can tell us some things about the school, such as it's uh, percentage of pupils with free school meals, percentage of, of pupils who have some form of uh, what was then special educational needs is now ALN. And I've, I've sometimes been quite struck that sometimes they'll give me these facts and figures, and they'll na- they they won't name a school, but they'll tell me it has a very low rate of free school meals and a strangely high rate of pupils who are uh, have some form of ALN. And that kind of leads me to wonder, you know, you're talking about all this sort of litigious thing. Has there historically been what I'll delicately call a bit of an equity issue around SCM, where you, see, you seem to have a, a strangely high proportion of pupils with, with special educational needs in the socio-economically least... Deprived areas and, uh, and a strangely lower one uh, in, in those with higher free school meals or, or are there just anomalies there that oh, I'm, I'm no, seeing?
2: <laughs> this is fascinatingly complex. Well, it is for me as a geek, but you know, it's <laughs> so complex. I think, um, yeah, there's loads of layers to this as well. So historically in the old system with statements of SEN, if the provision being identified by the local authority was local mainstream school with, and then, you know, one-to-one, so many hours of one-to-one support and intervention from a specialist teacher and blah, 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 blah. The parents legally had a right to request any school, any mainstream school in the local authority of their choice. That wasn't widely known, and it was probably more well-known amongst the more educated families, So we would have a lot of children and young people with statements of SEN where they were in a mainstream school of parental preference. So that kind of skewed the numbers slightly for some of the most sought-after schools. You know, those schools where people literally move to get their kids in the catchment, that sort of school. And as I say, that was more amongst a certain kind of group of parents that were more aware of that as being the option. I think also there has just generally over time been a consistent increase in parents carers preference being local mainstream provision over specialist provision. That's why uh, things like resource bases, learning resource bases, Uh, have kind of grown in popularity over the last decade um, because they give a halfway house. They enable a child to have specialist input and specialist provision, but with access to mainstream peers and mainstream school life. So it's like, it's a nice halfway house. Um, But so the numbers of, of learners with additional learning needs in mainstream schools, has just generally continued to increase and increase. Then there is also an increase, you know, so obviously my background specifically was ASD. And as a specialist team, we worked with any child or young person referred to us that was under assessment for autism or diagnosed. So we had like a huge kind of percentage of our pupils that we supported actually didn't have autism a lot of them had trauma backgrounds some had anxiety disorders um, specific learning difficulties anything that was impacting on their stress levels and rigidity and difficulties with friends that basically people had referred them for an autism assessment for and within that and this is very controversial to say out loud but we've had a huge increase in parent carer sought diagnoses and that often again tends to be the more socioeconomic advantaged families who are seeking that assessment and seeking that diagnosis in general very broadly generally speaking so again that kind of skews the stats in some what they call leafy suburb schools isn't it and because autism Is a disability in the new ALN definition, which is a learning difficulty impacting on access to age appropriate or a disability impacting on access to facilities, you can far easily identify and justify someone with ASD having ALN even if they haven't got learning difficulties, even if they're accessing curriculum at an age-appropriate level, because it will be impacting on their ability to function as part of the school community and, and f- form friendships and access the canteen and, you know, this sort of thing. So you ca- it's, it's more easy to kind of justify that definition. So in terms of numbers, again, that kind of slightly skews the stats. But, yeah it's complex I
1: mean this is a complex and very weighty tome of a document this code it's about Mm. 300 odd pages Mm -hmm. um, and for obvious reasons but something that struck me about it that seems to be key in all of this is speed speed of diagnosis or speed of provision and I just wondered for average is not the right word, but for your, for your average teacher on the ground in a mainstream setting, what role do they play in that process of deciding whether this is a child with an ALN and their provision, the additional learning provision that is made? You know, Do they have a role in that? And, and, and what is it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. They should have a role in that. They should be central to it. Um, so all... The, you know, the principles of inclusive um, education and of the you know, ALN Act and, and the Code is actually recognition that good quality teaching is at the heart of inclusion, that we can't have inclusion if we don't have really good quality teaching. And it's why there's this big stress on developing universal learning provision, good quality teaching good quality pedagogy in the classrooms and then thinking as an as a kind of the next level up is that not working is it is this child still struggling to access still struggling to make progress and if so we need to put something additional in place hence the additional learning provision and the teachers are really at the heart of that of identifying that of putting in the good quality teaching, of you know making sure the universal learning provision is in place. And it's the role of the Additional Learning Needs Coordinator now which has completely changed in this new code. It's the role of the Additional Learning Needs Coordinator really to ensure that the good quality universal learning provision has been put in place and therefore then we can start the process of calling a person centred meeting and discussing what the child's needs are and identifying what the additional learning provision might look like in the classroom for that learner they can only know that with the teacher's input because it's it's only the teacher that can say what they've had in place and where they can see there's still Pockets of need in areas where things haven't worked, strategies haven't worked. So yeah, the teachers are really central to it all. In some schools, the teachers write the individual development plans, the IDPs. So depending on the size of the school, if it's of a size where one, you know, additional learning needs coordinator cannot possibly call these person-centred reviews and write these IDP documents for every single learner with additional learning needs in their school provision it's the class teachers that do that so that varies from school to school but certainly you know the teachers part in this whole process is absolutely central.
1: Of course like our core business here at Cardiff Met within the IT teams and you're part of that team is to ensure that student teachers sort of reach those sort of thresholds in order to understand you know what what does good quality universal learning provision look like and how can i then distinguish if i'm i'm very new to teaching between whether or not this is an issue with my universal learning provision or whether this is actually that this this individual this group of learners needs something Over and above it, that's quite a difficult thing for somebody who is very, very new to the profession to understand. So, where do we place our focus and our emphasis when we've got a year with these student teachers? If it's a PGC route, we've got the luxury of time on the BA route, but where do we place our focus, our emphasis, and what do we mean by universal quality learning provision? I know these are big
2: questions, but. They're important, I think. I mean, I, I think, broadly speaking, our focus is in the right place. It's on pedagogy. It's mm-hmm. on developing good, quality teachers. And that is universal learning provision. So I don't think there needs to be a huge kind of shift in... I think maybe we need to start integrating some of the terminology a little bit more so that people feel familiar with it, so it doesn't feel... But that the same goes for our established teachers across our schools. Many of them feel a, a bit out of their depth around the ALN reform and particularly, you know, we've had a, a huge raft of reforms. I mean, this is what I did my doctorate on because I was just like, oh my goodness, what are we doing in Welsh education? Like, you know, the teaching standards changed, the leadership pathway changed, the curriculum changed, ALN changed, you know. And I mean, back in I think it was 2014, I'm just that's off the top of my head, so I might get that wrong. We had the, the OECD report about education in Wales and they used the term reform fatigue. They said in 2014, teachers in Wales are suffering from reform fatigue. There is a constant changing of the systems and people don't know where they're at and they're all exhausted and they feel like they're, you know, peddling to keep up. And, you know, Welsh government need to, like, calm it down for a bit and have a period of stability and instead of having a period of stability we completely revised all the systems again and I'm not I'm not saying that the the reforms are bad I think there's some real positives co- have come out of the recent reforms in Wales on on lots of levels um but it just does feel for a lot of teachers even those who have been you know teaching 10 20 30 years it feels really overwhelming keeping up with all these policy reforms and all this, you know, all these changes in legislation. But I think we can help with our student teachers by kind of weaving in the language around these reforms and the changes and the expectations when we're having discussions around developing good quality teaching practice what you know our pedagogy so that it when they go out into schools and somebody says you know what's the universal learning provision for this child they they don't go <gasps> God, I don't know. <laughs> you know, they can think like, "Oh, I know what that means. That means, you know, what good quality teaching practice have I got in place in my classroom that might be supporting this learner?" So I think that's the way we can we can help.
0: Thinking about those not so novice teachers, then I mean, I'm thinking back to my own time. I suppose I'm not a not I'm a not so novice teacher now. When when I started. I feel back back in the day, there was a sense you were a kind of ALN person or you were not an ALN person.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you, And if
0: you were not an ALN person, you did what you were told by the ALN people and, and, you know, they sent you things and you did as you were told and that was it. I mean, the, the kind of implication here with, with this reform, this new ALN code is that we want as many pupils as possible to participate in mainstream education. There's a kind of implication that, that it is becoming mainstream for all of us as teachers to be those ALN people, which is as you say quite scary and there's a professional learning implication there and we're seeing professional learning implications all over the place at the moment with all these reforms so to what extent is this thing becoming mainstream just a question of really good teaching and and refreshing on that and to what extent is it special stuff that people are going to have to learn and bolt on and understand can we give people any, any sort of comfort there
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say from my experience, so as I said earlier, I spent 15 years going out and about in all of the schools across Cardiff, special school and mainstream, primary and secondary. I'm working with teachers, working with the working with pupils, working with families. And I think the move towards mainstream has been there for a long time. That is the very notion of inclusion. And there is also some really good studies out there that show that inclusive practice, inclusive education, having learners with additional learning needs or SEN, depending on which which country you're teaching in, actually enhances the learning for all learners. You know, this is not just of benefit to the learner with ALN, but I think the good quality teaching practice that should be a given anyway is the heart of like good inclusive pedagogy and so it isn't reinventing the wheel it's not learning new things from scratch it's not this whole big oh I need to understand all of these things and it it is just about having really good quality practice and I remember this has gone back a long time now many many years ago but I remember being in high school and I'd Observed this learner. I think he was year nine at the time. Across about six or seven hours worth of school in different subjects, and then I'd written a report with some recommendations of strategies that needed to be in place. And I think there was a, probably about twelve strategies in there. And I remember sitting down with like a core team of, of teachers that work with them because the school were worried, you know, really worried about this young man and and the Elenco and talking through the strategies and what we needed to put in place. And I remember somebody saying, um, you know, well, this is ridiculous. How can we possibly put all of this in place on top of, you know, teaching 30-odd students, da-da-da-da. And very controversially, I said, because there wasn't anything on my list of strategies that was ALN specific. Like there was nothing like autism specific. I wasn't asking them to use like symbols or PECs or Makaton or, do you know what I mean? It was like, it was nothing like that. And I remember just turning around to the teacher and saying, if you had Esther in next week, you would be doing all of these things because you recognise that they are good quality teaching. Mm. And honestly, you can imagine that did not go down great. But the point being, (laughs) when we're putting on our all singing, all dancing lessons, the lesson is well structured with... The key learning points up on the board, and the tasks written down nicely and clearly, and some keywords perhaps, and some nice resources to support the learning. and the tasks have a clear start and finish, and there's time indicators on the board for how long you've got left on your task. And all of those sorts of things would they would the sorts of things I was recommending. So no, it's it isn't rocket science. It's not some massive mountain they have to climb. I think part of the challenge is getting teachers to believe in themselves about that and to understand that that's so fundamental because I think there's a general kind of feeling amongst a lot of practitioners that having learners with additional learnings in the classroom is some big extra ask that they have to tag on to all the other big asks that they're juggling and, um, and that it's some, you know, Huge, insurmountable task that they you know they can't possibly manage on top of everything else in their workload so I think it's about kind of changing perceptions that it isn't specialist pedagogy it's just inclusive pedagogy it's just good quality teaching and I wonder if in some part a a reason for
1: these issues is these sort of indelible myths and misconceptions around differentiation. You know, it was something that when I was trained to teach, and it was called teacher training back then, it was about learning styles Mm -hmm. and having to factor that into our planning and Mm -hmm. and to plan for the visual auditory kinesthetic learners which we now know and we've said a lot on this Mm -hmm. podcast um you know is a myth and a misconception but there are still some you know remnants of that out there and they are witnessed observed by student teachers who think that you know you, you do have to Make sure that you've got all of these extra worksheets, resources, you know, staying up until God knows what time at night to make sure that they've got all of this extra provision in place. How do we dispel those myths? What would you say to anybody that's sort of still thinking that they need to be creating all of this extra work, resources? You know, is that what we're talking about when we're talking about differentiation?
2: I mean, I suppose it depends on the needs of the learners in your class as to what differentiation is for that group. Because basically what we're talking about, so with inclusive pedagogy, we're talking about kind of broadly in all of your teaching practices and approaches with, with your learners, making sure that everybody is involved and everybody is included and everybody's needs are taken into account. Inclusion is literally for everyone. It's not just for kids with ALN differentiation is about making sure that the, the, the learning opportunities being presented to the learners are accessible to them. So it completely depends on your group of learners because if you've got a learner in your classroom who has a severe visual impairment, the differentiation you're going to need to put in place to make sure they can access the tasks is going to be really different to if you've got a learner in your classroom who's got ADHD. So for one, you need to break down the tasks and make sure you can maintain their focus and they're getting regular kind of breaks between activities. For the other, you're going to have to blow up to whatever, you know, the VI specialist recommends, font size, any worksheets. You're going to need to sit them near the front so they can see you. You're going to need to make sure you're not standing with a window behind you so you're a silhouette. What it looks like to support a child or a young person to access the learning opportunity is completely dependent on the needs of that learner. One of the really great things to come out of this ALN reform is the kind of universal acceptance of person-centredness. Person-centred practice is not new, person-centred practice is decades old and it's certainly been the kind of bread and butter of specialist provisions for a very, very long time. But taking that person-centred uh, practice on board across our mainstream schools and embracing it as, as well as they have, is a, you know, it's been fantastic. It's been a really positive change, I think. And, you know, you, I don't think there's a school in Wales that you would go into right now that wouldn't have a one-page profile for a learner with additional learning needs. And having that one-page profile that's been put together by the learner, by their family, by any external professionals involved with them, by the ELENCO, by their class teacher or tutor if they're in secondary school, that identifies what they're into, what they like, what they struggle with, what you need to do in terms of approaches. Like that really gives you a really quick snapshot in terms of your planning to think, what do I need to factor in? So if it says on there that the learner needs instructions broken down into small steps and given visually, i.e. a written list of what they need to do in the session, then you know that you need to provide that for that learner. That's what needs to be put in place. If you need to give them writing frames or, you know, word banks or whatever it is, that will that should be identified on that one-page profile. So, they're your kind of starting point. That's your go-to. And then getting to know the learners as you work with them, as you teach them, and working out, well, when I tweak that activity that way that really worked and they really got involved and engaged so I'll use that strategy again and when I tried it that way it completely fell flat and you know they were not on board and they did not understand what we were talking about Uh, so I won't do that again it's about that kind of trial and error really it's about knowing your individual learners.
0: Let's zoom out all the way now to this huge curriculum reform that we're in the middle of we've we've (laughs) referred to this a number of times in this episode and and I suppose the, the the pressures that the system is under trying to get their heads around this stuff Mm -hmm. so let's think about this in two halves really we've got the new curriculum coming in where are the potential opportunities there for our pupils with additional learning needs and I suppose if we were to keep an eye out for the potential problems or threats for them particularly that group of learners or those various groups of learners what might those be?
2: So, in terms of opportunities, I mean, I think if you look at all the documentation around the curriculum reform, inclusion is referred to, like, throughout. Uh, They don't, interestingly enough, refer to ALN anywhere in any of the curriculum reform documents, which in itself is interesting. But they do talk about inclusion and the inclusion of all learners and and equity. um, That is, you know, at the heart of the the curriculum reform and so there's lots of elements of, of the curriculum reform that have the potential to be hugely beneficial so the obvious one is developing learning opportunities around individual interests so that's the bit where for lots of our specialist provision as they were bringing the curriculum reform in lots of the special schools went Oh, awesome, because that's what we do anyway. You know, we topic teach around things that are real life and of interest to our learners. That's how we engage them. So that side of things, you know, has the potential to be really, really beneficial for the learners with additional learning needs out in mainstream. Um, and obviously, the the fact that we're, we're the new curriculums focused on progression steps you know, and meeting the learners where they are, rather than where they should be by a certain point in the school calendar, um, that also obviously has massive benefits because um, lots of learners with additional learning needs are either just broadly delayed and and you know significantly behind their, their uh, peers, same age peers, or. For many, especially neurodiverse learners, uh, they can have very, very spiky profiles. So they can be way ahead in some areas of the curriculum uh, than similar age peers. And then in other areas of the curriculum, they can be way behind. So it enables the teachers to really kind of meet the learners where they are, shape learning opportunities around the skills that you know will be right for the individual learners to develop and develop things around their interests obviously with my background being autism for anyone who has worked with kids you know autistic uh, children uh, they will know that the special interest hook is like fundamental to getting kids with autism on board. Uh, Finding out what it is that they are completely and utterly obsessing about at the moment and weaving it in wherever possible to get their buy-in and to get them on board has always been a kind of feature of, of working with those learners. I remember one year in a specialist provision, I taught a young lad, he was 16 at the time, and when he arrived uh, at the school, he said to me, because I was teaching maths and English at the time to these students, and he said, I'll come to your English lessons, but I'm never coming to your maths lessons, I don't do maths. And I was like, all right, okay. And I had him on my timetable for maths, and I was like, oh, how am I going to get around this? turned out he was really into Elvis Presley. So I taught an entire academic year's worth of maths through the medium of Elvis Presley. (laughs) Like, honestly, we mapped his tour... Uh, journeys and miles covered the stadiums he'd played how many people were in them we designed outfits for him we baked a birthday cake for him we made a compilation album working out how many minutes more we could fit on our cd back in the cd days um (laughs) and how much we'd have to charge for it to make it viable you know like we the number of things we 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 tracked his weight gain and loss yes (laughs) um Yeah, we did all sorts of nonsense um, about Elvis Presley for an entire year. He used to sometimes come to my lessons dressed as Elvis, which was a joy. And um, yeah, it was just, he got so much learning from that. He got so much out of it, but he would never have done it if I'd have called it maths. (laughs) You know, so for, for the kids with ASD... Uh, working around topics of interest has always been a really, really fundamental way to get the buy-in. So there's lots of potential opportunities. The other thing with the curriculum for Wales is this focus on preparing children and young people for life. And again, I think that's really fundamental for lots of learners with ALN feeling part of a community, understanding their roles in the community, understanding relationships and healthy relationships and, you know, all of those things about, you know, citizenship and, and, you know, preparing for moving forward. That, again, is something that the specialist provisions have been doing for a very long time and, and is a really nice kind of shift in focus with the curriculum for Wales. And the potential challenges. There's lots, aren't they? I mean, we, we can see from the Scotland picture now around the pitfalls around their curriculum reform, which is not very far removed from our curriculum reform since how it was, uh, you know, started by the same person <laughs> and driven by the same person. Um, so, broadly speaking, for all learners, there's potential issues around quality and consistency across the system and about assessment and about the implications for assessments for the future and we don't know yet what the GCSE format's going to look like and there's potential pitfalls there but also it's this broader thing again about inclusion feeling like it's central to the curriculum reform but that we haven't necessarily got all practitioners out there on board with that yet and there's still potentially a lot of practitioners out there that feel like this is something that's being asked in addition of all the other things that are being asked of them um, and that certain things are beyond their remit and and shouldn't be things that they they're being asked to do. And that's the same with the ALN reform. So I, th- I think it's it's like winning hearts and minds, and 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 really kind of getting inclusive pedagogy as as just an accepted part of what we do as teachers, um, as opposed to them seeing it like an add-on. Coming back to um, the sort of settings that you
1: might find in Wales for provision for pupils with additional learning needs you talked earlier on about the sort of rise of and popularity of of bases Mm -hmm. specialist bases in mainstream school settings and we still have a small number of maintained special schools Mm -hmm. in Wales I remember listening to you speak at a staff meeting at the start of this year actually and it really sort of resonated with me about this move towards inclusion you know, ought to include more of these specialist bases in mainstream settings for all the reasons that you just talked about. Do you foresee a future where we have even less special schools and more of these inclusion bases? Is that, is that even possible for pupils who've got profound and multiple learning
2: disabilities? Is is that a future that you think is is viable? I mean, I definitely think that... It's possible to increase and and develop SRB they call different things in different local authorities aren't they so it's specialist resource bases, SRBs um, in my last authority that I worked in in some places it's inclusion bases, resource bases, learning resource bases, LRBs it depends on where you're working but this notion of a specialist provision within a mainstream setting, I think there's definitely a call for more of them. Personally, if I had like a magic wand, you know, if I could make myself prime minister for a week, well, there's a lot of things I'd do different actually, but we won't go there. I would make all new build schools. I would make a resource base of some form, like a mandatory kind of part of the building process. I would would factor them in into all new schools because I just think the level of need is increasing year on year. In terms of would it ever mean that we would need less... Uh, specialist settings I actually don't think it would because the number of children and young people with incredibly complex needs just increases year on year and there's loads of reasons you know you could debate that for weeks there's loads of reasons loads of factors why not least advances in medical science so therefore, more children are surviving, you know, that wouldn't have necessarily survived in the past in terms of like through the pregnancy process, but also then through their early life and et cetera, et cetera. And there just is a, a higher prevalence of lots of areas of need. So I don't think we'd I don't think we'll ever get to a point where there's not a call for thinking like of the South Wales uh, local authorities Every single one of them is currently increasing the size of their special schools. Like, every specialist provision is being, year on year, like, notched up another class another class another can you take a few more can you take a, the buildings are being expanded and developed there's new builds on the horizon for lots of special schools you know if you look at a of dairy as as a case in point which i know lots of people know now because it's been on tv you know i've worked with colleagues there for years and i've placed lots of children young people in Asculladerry to an excellent school in fact i worked with them when they were Ashgrove like years back before the the special school merger but when they built that uh, campus, it was like, oh, my goodness, we're going to build this absolutely enormous special school and it's going to be brilliant and there's going to be loads of space and loads of capacity and it's going to be the most fabulous thing ever. They were full in a heartbeat and there's like a massive waiting list and they're needing to expand it year on year because there's not enough places in the provision to, you know, for, the, for the level of demand out there. So I think you need both. I think you need to continue to grow the special school sector and you also need to develop more uh, specialist resource bases across the mainstreams
0: really struck by the parallels in this quite substantial conversation and another quite substantial conversation we had a few weeks ago with professor david egan about poverty and education and mm. loads of the things that you said uh, kind of ring with what he was saying early on. And I gather you have joined forces with Professor, professor David Egan, superhero style, to create a uh, social justice research group. So tell I also, that.
2: I also like the very substantial conversation. So basically, maybe me and David talk a bit too much. Maybe he's rubbing off on me. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> you say good things, which is why we keep recording.
2: Um, yeah, so we have um, formed a new research group Uh, social justice in education. And yeah, that's what we're focusing on. All things equity, basically. So it's not about, it's not just about poverty. It's not just about additional learning needs. It's about anything where we're talking about an existing inequity in our system. So we've got colleagues uh, who are members of the group who are particularly interested in gender differences. Uh, We do have a lot of interest in the poverty elements, especially with the autumn report about outcomes for the learners in Wales versus the learners in England in even in comparative local authorities we're doing way worse in terms of uh, pov- the poverty gap so obviously at the moment that's a huge agenda for Welsh government so there is there, there are a number of colleagues who are really interested in that obviously the race you know black minority and ethnic issues uh, there you know there's lots of colleagues as part of the group who are very focused on that and then yeah additional learning so it's basically an opportunity for people to network we've got students like PhD students are part of the group and uh, lecturers and you know it's open to representatives from schools we're running some research seminars at the moment we did one a couple of weeks ago and it was on community schools to kind of look at that a little bit more around the kind of Welsh government agenda around that and how they see that supporting the, the kind of poverty gap and uh, yeah so it's an opportunity to network to touch base to share kind of projects and invite colleagues to come and participate in, in research projects. Yeah, it's good. I enjoy it. And and circling all the way back to the start before we get to the, the
1: short slots, something I noted from your background is that you took a PGC primary route, but yeah. it sounds like the roots of, you know, what you were really interested in, which is working with pupils with ALN, started way before then. So... Was the route that you wanted available to you at the time? And do you think those routes into working with pupils with additional learning needs, maybe in those specialist settings, are visible, open to student, potential student teachers at the moment? What, what's, what's, what should the future look like in that vein?
2: Oh, again, it put me in charge for a week. And uh, <laughs> no, I think so there's a huge need in the ELN sector. If we look, there was a, a an Eston report for the Western Fed campus, which is like Teguin Riverbank Woodlands, um, not so long back, a few weeks ago. And even Eston, in their report, acknowledged that the schools were experiencing a staffing crisis, you know, that they were managing brilliantly despite facing a huge issue around staffing. As the ALN sector continues to grow in this consistent trend, which it is, you know, there's no denying it uh, across Wales. The number of practitioners out there interested in ALN and feeling skilled enough in ALN, because that's the other part of it, isn't it? You can be wanting to get into it, but feeling like oh, I couldn't possibly apply because I don't know what I'm doing. So there's a huge need out there for, for more skilled practitioners. Was the route available for me? I mean, there, there was... There was no notion of anything other, you know, if you wanted to get into teaching in special educational needs back 20 years ago, you just went through the, you qualified as a mainstream teacher and, you know, and then you worked for a bit in the mainstream and then you, you know, got your stripes to be able to move on into. I was really lucky in my first mainstream role, my first and only mainstream role, to work with a learner with a dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism who was nonverbal. So I worked with them for a couple of years. I had to learn Makaton and use symbol communication, PEX communication, and factor them into my mainstream <laughs> lessons. And so that gave me lots of experience and confidence to then feel able to apply for a, a specialist setting role. But obviously, there wasn't any kind of formal training pathway specifically for ELN and yeah, I would love there to be I think it would be absolutely brilliant if we actually had a pathway for training uh, teachers in additional learning needs. We have a brilliant halfway house at the moment with the pilot that's running around the PGC students being able to select a a specialist placement for the second uh, for CP2 and, I, you know, that was very successful last year. And I know a number of the students that did that last year actually got jobs in special schools as NQTs um, for the, the following September. So I think that's a, a really fantastic step in the right direction. Um, but I definitely think that, you know, there could be more opportunities for, for training specifically in ALN because it is huge. You know, yeah, it is underpinned by good quality primary teaching, but there's so m- much else to kind of take on board and learn and, and navigate as well. So I think you know, it would be fantastic to have a pathway for that.
0: Well, Dr. Anne Hodgson, thank you for that uh, substantial discussion. I'll say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But, but full of <laughs> just, really interesting just things just edit it
2: and cut it down and make it sound like I was really succinct and I gave you really were,
0: you were <laughs> it <laughs> was it was full of goodness which is why we, we stuck with it it's been really good thank you for covering that we've wanted to cover this topic for quite some time so on to the homework slots have you done your homework and in which order would you like to present them <laughs>
2: Do you know, hilariously, I totally haven't done my homework. So we are going to freestyle <laughs> it. Um, you know, uh, it's a, it's just a kind of general rule of thumb as to how I operate. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just hit me with the first one. What, what do you want to Go do? Go on if-
0: then, something interesting. <laughs>
2: OK, something interesting. Yeah, so I was saying earlier, wasn't it, that I, I rem- reminded myself this morning uh, that, about what we were going to be asked. And when I saw that I was supposed to bring something interesting, you know, something I've listened to or read, I was like, oh, oh goodness, what am I going to talk about? Nothing appropriate to education.
0: Which is fine.
2: Which is fine, <laughs> which is absolutely we like fine. We yeah. Um, yeah, I think... Um, Obviously, I was joking Ellie about saying, it, let's talk about the, the the Last of Us, which I am loving it. I am terrified by it, But I'll, I'll do something slightly, slightly more highbrow. The podcast that I'm listening to at the moment, because uh, I do like a podcast, particularly in a car journey. So the podcast that I'm listening to at the moment is Annie McManus's Change. Uh, so I am obviously obsessed with all things change. Hence, I did my doctorate in Change and how we navigate change. And she's got this really interesting format. So it's Annie Mack, obviously, from the radio. She's got this podcast that basically interviews its guests based on what was the biggest change from your childhood, what was the biggest change in your adult life, and what change would you like to see, either personally or in the world moving forward. And it's just such an interesting format because there's lots of people that go on there who were interviewed on all different platforms all the time, you know, people that you've heard interviewed so many times over and over again about, like, their area of, like, interest. They might have been on, like, Russell Brand, and then they've been on, like, The Happy Place with Fern Cotton, and then they've been on... And, and you hear the same sorts of things from them all the time. But actually, coming at it from a completely different angle and giving them a, an opportunity to talk about something that, Probably nobody's ever pitched that question to them before uh, in their lives. Just makes for a really interesting interview. Um, So, yeah, so that's my something interesting. And, of course, something to try is our second. So what have you got for us on that (laughs) front? (laughs) Should I list them? I've got... No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, So in terms of practice in the classroom, one of the things that I think is the most obvious... But therefore, the most overlooked is providing really clear structure and instructions for our students. And I think... Especially when it comes to learners, autistic learners, there's a kind of general acceptance and, oh, yeah, they need routine and, you know, they need things the same and, you know, this sort of thing. Everybody kind of generally gets that that's like a a, a useful way forward for for autistic learners. But actually, there are so many learners for whom having clear structure and clear expectations of, of what they need to do in a lesson would be enormously beneficial for learners with English as an additional language, which obviously is a very culturally diverse you know, country, particularly South Wales, that's really important in our classrooms for children and young people with specific language difficulties, with children and young people with learning difficulties, ADHD, so difficulties focusing and remaining on task, you know, and obviously the autistic learners. For learners who are anxious, who have got anxiety disorders, who are constantly worrying about what's next, what's going to happen, how long am I going to be doing this for? You know, there's so many different groups of learners for whom Having a really clear structure and a really clear outline, you know, even just a simple to-do list up on the board of what, you know, what they need to achieve in that lesson is massively comforting and it creates a really safe learning space and when people feel safe and therefore they're less stressed they're more cognitively able they're more able to engage cognitively in the learning and the task at hand so it's really simple like straightforward like approach but it's massively effective on lots of levels for lots of reasons so that that would be my have a go
0: and before we let you go be remiss of us not to ask if someone's interested in the work of the Cardiff Education and Social Justice Research Group, or they want to get involved, or they want to get in touch, how do they find you and Professor David Egan in your back cave?
2: Um, I wish we had a bat cave.
0: (laughs) I imagine you have. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't, get one. We definitely
2: need to get a bat cave. Um, Yeah, just drop me an email. Drop me an email. So um, I get the joy of of doing all the running around and organising and uh, adding people to groups and sending out invites and stuff. So, yeah, if people want to come along and they want to participate, they want to join in, yeah, send us an email. We've got our research uh, seminar coming up at the end of march i think it is is specifically about poverty um and and the impact of poverty on attainment in wales Ooh, so if stick anybody's
0: stick your uh, email in the show notes then and uh, prepare yeah. for a deluge
1: no worries <laughs> <laughs> dr anne hodgson it's been our pleasure hopefully you've enjoyed your podcast experience and uh you know now that we know where to find you
2: <laughs> <laughs> well i've survived i've survived that's the main set thing set the bar low <laughs>
1: I say we'll know where to find you unless you do uh, manifest some kind of bat cave and uh, in which case you'll be off grid and and (laughs) (laughs) you can hide. All right. um, Lovely to have you. And um, for our listeners out there, we'll be back with you in two weeks time.
0: You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Fay and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr. Anne Hodgson. Thanks to Anne for taking part. And if you want to contact her, she's at ahodgson at cardiffmet.ac.uk. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us at Pod on Twitter if you want to come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and
1: enjoy teaching.